0: Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God together in prayer.
1: Father, we come to you, each of us, in need of light, in need of transformation. And because you've gathered us here, and you've done these extraordinary things, and you have preserved The good news of your gospel, and you've bound yourself to these things like praying and singing and spending time with this word. We believe you. We believe that you'll transform us. In Christ's name, amen. For a few weeks before we head into the Christmas season, Advent, we are returning to our first theme at the beginning of the ministry year, experiencing and expressing the fullness of the gospel. And by gospel, we mean the good news that the King has come, God's King has come, Jesus Christ. And when we experience the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, it calls you to action. It results in action, which means a disciple, a follower of Christ, just doesn't believe things, they do things. Okay? They do things. And last week, we took some time and looked at that in terms of identity, that one of the transforming works God begins to do is you you begin to see yourself fundamentally as a servant. And now, I want to narrow it a bit and talk about deeds in terms of justice, Participating in the work of God's justice. Now, when we consider how churches approach this, I think there have been two general ways. You have churches that practice justice passionately, but they do so worldly, meaning that they take their cues and definition for justice primarily from the culture in the world. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't sometimes seek to wake up the church through the world about justice issues, he will. But the problem is, there's no discernment or reflection. Say, an example of that is same-sex marriage, where there would be, and some would say, well, this is an issue purely of justice. And the question would be, biblically, where does one see that, founded? A second view would be, churches that practice justice selectively but they define it according to their race, their socioeconomic class, their ethnicity. And so it tends to be a focused view, too focused, of justice. An example of this would be in the white evangelical church, where for years the only justice issue you would hear about is abortion. Now, is abortion a justice issue? Definitely. It's a horrible issue, and an issue the church has to take up. But you found it was the only issue. And that's because primarily that's what white evangelicals cared about. Or maybe prayer in school, you would add that. Ironically, both have the same, have the same problem. Excuse me. <coughs> both have the same problem. And that is scriptural ignorance. Biblical ignorance. Failing to reckon with all that God has to say about justice. And, uh, you know, with the slide today, I I purposely wanted all those verses behind the title. That's just a sampling of all the places that God talks about justice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says a lot about justice. And one of those places is Psalm 82, which we heard read. You may know that the Psalms were the playlist of the people of Israel. They would come together, they would recite them, they would sing them, and it resulted in two things. It would enlighten them, and it would also inflame their hearts. And God means the same thing for us today. He means to enlighten us and inflame our hearts about the work of his justice. That's why he gave us these. And what I'd like to do is consider this psalm through two categories, two points, the origin of justice and the obligation of justice. The origin of justice and the obligation of justice. The Bible teaches that the beginning point for justice is in ourselves. It's not ourselves and it's not lawmakers. The beginning point for justice is God himself. That justice flows from his character and his heart and ultimately his love. And you see that here in this psalm. The psalmist paints the scene of the highest court in the land. And it's not the Supreme Court. It's the court of heaven. And God is judging. He's presiding over this assembly as the great judge. And as the picture shows the Lord elevated above all things, it's immediately letting us know that he is the origin of all justice. And under that idea of being the origin of all justice, there's a couple things we could say. One, he possesses the authority of justice. When a law enforcement person crosses a state line, they realize, well, I don't have jurisdiction here. You know, or if someone in an army moves into another national boundary line, well, they don't have jurisdiction there. God, we're being told here, has unbounded jurisdiction when it comes to justice which means that he has the ability and the right to move into all these areas where we might say, hey, this ain't a justice issue. You know, you can't come in here and shake things up. He moves in. He has this ability. And it's not only the authority of his justice, it's the consistency of his justice. As much as human courts seek to be consistent, they err. The Supreme Court, I have no doubt, the men and women try their hardest, but you end up with things like Plessy versus Ferguson. Separate but equal. And that's not the only erroneous decision. Human courts can't execute perfect justice. And yet, in verse 2, we find that God calls for consistency. Oftentimes, it's people crying out to God, how long, how long? But here you have God crying out to the world rulers, how long, how long will it be that you're selective with your justice and you're unfaithful with your justice? Because the heart of God is consistency. Moses was a judge when he was alive. He was a judge in Israel. He was also a lawgiver. And Moses was someone that knew the importance of justice because he saw the effects of injustice. But he, he, he didn't just know it theoretically. Moses experienced it personally in a negative sense. When Moses sinned against God, God executed his justice and said to Moses, You cannot enter the promised land. Moses was experiencing the consequences, right, of God's justice. Yet at the end of his life, in the final speech he ever gives, this is what he says about God. You would think that he might whine and say, Come on, you see the people that you gave me here? You see the challenge I have? But this is what he says. When everybody in that audience would have known, you're not going into the promised land. Moses says, this of the Lord, all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. He affirms the consistency of the justice of God. But thirdly, another thing we see in this idea in the psalm is the advocacy of God's justice. Not only here, but all throughout the Bible, God is depicted as the defender and advocate for those that are vulnerable and needy. When all else fails through, he doesn't forget, even if it's time in execution. You know, Jesus uh, once told a, a parable about prayer, about a widow that wouldn't stop bugging a judge about getting justice. And he says, well, God will bring justice speedily for his elect. But will there be faith on earth when the Son of Man arrives? He's the advocate of the vulnerable. And you see this through the, the wide range of verses. Uh, verse 3, God is the advocate of the weak. And that Hebrew word means this idea of some, like a scrawny sheep that's so weak it can't defend itself. God is the one that's defending. You know, when you feel scrawny, when you feel weak, when people can't defend themselves, God is the one that believes he is to rise. Uh, About a month ago, we had this grace training. You heard uh, Debbie mention it briefly in her testimony, and uh, godly response to abuse in church. And uh, that training uh, in it, the speaker spent a long time talking about um, the way that God warns and profiles predators. He does this through the imagery of wolf in the scripture. And once, you know, once I saw that, once he said that, I was like, wow, there is this whole body of scripture where God is equipping his people so they might recognize predators because he's the defender of the weak. Also, he's the advocate of the fatherless, we're told, the orphan. I was having a little email exchange with a former member who happens to be the president of the Christian Alliance, Jed Medifin. And he said, and we were talking about some different things going on, and he said, and by the way, the numbers came in just this week, that uh, there are 442,000 kids in foster care. 442,000 kids in foster care. 100,000 in need of adoption, able to be adopted. And at the same time, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, tragically, you have faith-based adoption agencies being shut down because of their religious beliefs. So these children are deprived of the justice of God because of injustice. And then you have God as the advocate of the poor. For ancient folk, land was everything, right? It was, it was not only where you lived, it was your livelihood. It was the wealth that you passed over to your family. It was the provision by which you ate. It was it was your shelter. And so to be landless meant that you were at high risk to be exploited. And so God has special care for those that were poor, those that didn't have that asset. And you could go throughout Scripture and see other reasons. Or just in our day, those that are poor because of, well, let me say this first, because Many times in the discussion of the poor, it comes up, well, doesn't the Bible talk about poverty and laziness? Let me just say this. The Bible talks about poverty far more. The Bible names, it names injustice as the cause of poverty far more than it does laziness. If you read these verses, you'll see that. Injustice is the cause of poverty And sometimes that's a result of discrimination. In 1940, black teachers got paid less than half. This was in Georgia, but it was also not just Georgia, in the South. Black teachers got paid half of their white counterparts. Now, some folk might say, well, you know, that was a long time ago. Well, not if you understand generational wealth, but on top of that, wasn't that long ago. The Pew Research Foundation said that just a few years ago, black and Hispanic men earned 75% of what white men earned. And women earn 83% of what white men earn. And so you see this disparity continues. These are issues of justice in terms of the Bible. Are people being cared for? Are they being advocated for? Now, something in verse 3 I think uh, merits our attention. And I want you to turn your attention there. Because at the beginning of this section, where we go into these, the weak, the fatherless, the poor, you notice that it says, it doesn't say, rather, give mercy to the poor and the fatherless. It says what? Give justice. And the reason that's important is because many churches, I would say most churches that I've seen and been in, they understand their ministries to the poor and to the orphan and to the widow only as mercy ministry. But when you read the Bible, you actually see it's reverse. It's primarily mentioned as justice ministry. Now, why is that important? Mercy is important. Well, the reason is if you only see something through the lens of mercy, you won't see the violation of rights. You won't see the justice issues involved. And God wants us to see those things because they're the very thing that drove him It's the thing that drove his love. Jesus, in his first sermon, Luke tells us, quotes from Isaiah 61. And at the end of the sermon, he says, rather, at the end of that passage, if you go to Isaiah, after Jesus says, I've come to set the captives free, he's talking about justice. And then he says, I love the Lord. I, the Lord, love justice. This is what Isaiah says. If you love someone, you desire their holiness. Right? It's impossible to love someone and not desire their shalom and their wholeness. This is how God understands love. And the way he does it is he identifies. Proverbs says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, But he who is generous to the needy honors him. The Lord identifies with the poor and the vulnerable. And how do we know that? Well, the gospel tells us, Right? So much so, how far would God go to identify with the poor and the vulnerable? He will become flesh and blood and become a poor man. He will become a victim of injustice. This is the identification of God. It's such a wonderful, beautiful thing. And how seriously does he take justice? One person has said, at the cross, God accepted his own unbreakable terms of justice. Right? The gospel teaches that although the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was innocent, he came to identify with sinners to the point where he would take their guilt upon him, but the cross shows you how seriously God takes justice because even his Son is not exempt from it, as he represents you and I. And so, as we think about the origin of justice, we have to remember That the origin of justice isn't the Constitution, it's not liberalism, it's not activism. The origin of justice is God. The origin of justice is Scripture. Now, let's move to this idea of obligation. And let let me say this, because we were singing this last song, and it was such a beautiful thing about, and, and our psalm ends this way, where it says, God is the inheritor of the nations. Why does God want his people to demonstrate this sort of justice? Because ultimately he wants the nations to see the beauty of his justice. He wants the world to see that. Israel was supposed to be a model community, which made their failure of justice all the more, and the churches too. Now let's look at the obligation of justice. This psalm refers to a mighty obligation that is placed upon... Uh, authorities, but all men and women. And uh, you might have seen this thing, gods, right, where it says, um, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. You thought, wait a second, I thought the Christian faith didn't believe there were lots of gods. What it's talking about there, that, that, that word gods is usually translated in one or two ways. One, it's talking about spiritual powers. Like in Ephesians chapter 6, principalities and powers. Or it's talking about earthly leaders. You know, at the end of it, it talks about the sons of God. These are earthly leaders that God has given authority and power to. And it's the latter in this passage that he's referring to. Partly because he mentions they're dying. And also Jesus makes a reference. So I, I, I can tell you more about that if you're interested. But what they represent is this, the systems that God uses to execute and guard his justice. This is why he has appointed worldly rulers, those in political power, those in law enforcement, right? And and not just that, those that have power, for instance, those that have financial power. It's all these groups of consolidated power that represent his system of justice. And it's the system that God is charging and condemning. And you find the same thing in the New Testament. The reason why this is important is, you know, many times we can read those things and just think, well, God is talking about individual rich people or wealthy people or people that just, no, he's talking about systems of justice that had been put into place, that had been given a special commission and whatever power they have to execute it justly. And here he says in verse 5 that those leaders have fallen so far, they can't even know and understand what justice is. That's how bad it's gotten. They've become blind to even recognizing what justice is. And there are a couple consequences that occur when that happens. First of all, when a system that is put into place for authority and justice fails, the result is what we would call systemic injustice. Now, that's kind of a loaded word in our day. People hear that and go, wait a second. You know, that that means, I'm just telling you, basically... These are systems that God has put into place, and when they fail to be just, it's systemic injustice. Just a pure definition of it. And how is systemic injustice different than individual injustice? Well, let me use an example. In the 1940s in Germany, you might have an entrepreneur that would start a business, and it might fail for a variety of reasons. It wasn't a good business idea. There were other competitors. But if you were a Jewish person, your business would fail right? Because the Nazis would make sure it would fail. The first is an example of justice. The second is an example of systemic injustice. Systemic injustice is coordinated, planned injustice, working together. It's when those that have power, money, and means intentionally shut out or exploit a particular group of people. And the thing that's critical for us to see, is it's not out there. It's not out there because this psalm is written to the community of God. In fact, virtually every passage you see that talks about this terrible, heinous injustice, it is directed toward the covenant community. Translation, church folk, or another translation in our day and age, uh, these would be Christian politicians, Christian bankers, Christian lawyers. God is talking to people of faith here. And that, I think, is a very sobering thing. How is it that people that have been given the word of God and the law of God and the spirit of God and the grace of God can become so vulnerable to injustice in their midst it's a constant problem, you see, and it moves over into the New Testament as well. Look at James chapter 5. Whether it's the Old Testament and the New Testament, many times the people of faith are blind in their participation in systemic injustice. And so if that was the case for the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the only reason you and I would think it couldn't be the case in the church today is if we're naive or proud. And we don't want to be neither one of those. We have to understand, especially Reformed folks should, because they supposedly have a good doctrine of sin. If you have a good doctrine of sin, you're going to believe, yeah, people are sinful today, just like they were then. But also the idea of sola scripture, scripture alone, well, I would invite anybody and everybody to read those passages. And so with both those things, you would think we're well equipped to at least engage in thoughtful examination. And I want to lead us to think about that in three ways to close. But I want to answer one question that often comes up about the limits of justice. Uh, There's always been a debate in the church to say, well, these verses about justice and mercy and poor refer to the church, the covenant community, and not the world. Well, true first and foremost, I mean, imagine this. If we're not practicing this stuff in the covenant community, in the church, we're no good anyway. Paul would say in the book of Romans to the religious people, it's because of you the Gentiles are blaspheming God in the world because of your hypocrisy. So, of course, it's got to be the covenant community. But the question is, are we called to go beyond that? And I would say clearly Scripture says that. You could look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. You could go to Proverbs where we hear this verse, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. One person has said, the people of God are called to aspire to be an ideal society with their justice visible to all peoples, that all nations might come to know the truth of God. And it wasn't just those in power that were to act. All Israel was called. You know, just like in our day, those in law enforcement are to uphold the law, but so are citizens. And so how do we then, how do we move into a place where we begin to see and we begin to be vigilant about this critical issue. Let me suggest a familiar phrase, but a little turn on it. Ask, seek, and knock. Okay? This is what I'm going to give us to close. Ask, seek, and knock. Uh, King David once prayed, Lord, um, you know, who can discern their errors? Show Show me my hidden faults. He also said that you want truth. We could say justice is part of truth in the inmost being. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, I would suggest we need to pray. If this is reality, which it is reality, and I would say much of the modern church, I I think probably when they read these things go, well, that's not us. We're not vulnerable to that sort of injustice. And again, I would say that's just naivety or pride. And so if we believe it is, the first order would be praying, asking God, would you open my eyes to where I'm complicit in systemic injustice? Would you show me, just as David prayed? The other part of asking would be, ask those, ask the poor, ask the immigrant, ask the widow, ask the orphan, ask those that have been oppressed, ask the minority, ask them, how have you experienced this? Because I'll tell you, for me, that has really been a game changer. I mean, you've heard me say before that, you know, as a white middle-aged male, I mean, I, I am uh, the poster child of majority culture blindness. And for a good part of my life, I would have said, as a Christian, uh, this systemic justice stuff, I, I don't really see it relevance at all. But the more I began to talk and the more I began to hear people the more I began to say, oh, the Scripture does a lot on this issue. You know, the truth is, for me, Ameri- the American system has worked pretty well for me. I mean, it just has, because of who I am and the advantages that I've had. Um, I've been able to navigate my way through life with lots of advantages. It's sort of like um, you know you're cruising down a highway, and on the sides are these bombed-out cars on fire, and people are waving their arms, and you're like whistling to the radio, going down the fast lane. And so that was basically the way I was navigating life. And as you begin to ask people, you begin to go, "Wait a second, there's a bigger picture and call to justice that God has given us." So, number one, let's ask Two, seek. That means this. If God has given you a place of authority and power, whether it's within the church or in the world, uh, you are called to seek justice. You're God's agent to be a voice of justice wherever you are. This is what he expects of his people. And um, let me say this. Even if you don't, Authority is a privilege, but also privilege is authority. Any of us that have privilege have authority that we steward. And so God has called us to seek justice in whatever circles we have that ability in. And I would just ask you, um, are you aware of what that is? What you've been given to steward? And what your call is? And then lastly, to knock. And by knock, I mean... Get involved. Our church and our diaconate has done such a great job in leading us with justice ministries. I mean, if you care about justice in housing, there's a ministry called Just Homes. If you care about justice in the unborn, we have Capital Pregnancy Center. If you care about the way justice has uh, intersected with the educational system, we got Little Lights. If you care about the way justice has affected women, we have Entryville. What I'm saying is there are all these opportunities for you and I to engage in justice. And I praise God that we are. I praise God that we're involved in that ministry. But the question is, uh, would the grace of God press us on further? How would it? How might it in your life? And so a disciple, if we're going to express the fullness of the gospel, word and deed, it means that we as a church are going to be about the work of justice because it is the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a just God. We thank you for the advocate you are. We thank you for the ways that you look after our lives, each of us here. And we pray that you would enlighten and flame our hearts, that we would be a church that is about that work. In Christ's name, amen.